Hi, my name is Yael and I'm a Buffy maniac. I've been one for over 22 years. And during this whole time, Buffy's a vampire slayer has been a constant source of joy, but also thought. It's made me think about the world, about television, about what it means to be human, to be a woman, to be in love, to be in pain, about ethics, about personal responsibility, about great screenwriting, and the necessity of humor and pathos. It's also made me reflect on who I am and who I want to become. And now, I want to share some of those thoughts with you. This is me, myself, and Buffy. The concept of this show is simple. I watch an episode of Buffy and then I talk about it. And I try to organize my thoughts in sections and you can find the time code to those sections in the description. And the only one that is spoilery beyond the episode we're talking about that week is the section called The Future. So you better skip that one if this is your first time watching Buffy. I don't know if it's better to watch the episode before listening to the podcast or the other way around, but um, if you have thoughts on that, please tell me. Now, let's do this. Episode 2, The Harvest. Here we go. I am very excited about the second episode because it's been a really long time coming, but also because I actually really love um, the second part of the pilot. So let's get started. And the first section is the data. So some, some, you know, concrete information about this episode. So the second part of the pilot called The Harvest originally aired on March 10th, 1997. It was written by Joss Whedon um, and it was directed by John T. Kretschmer. I don't really know how to pronounce it, but I, I know he directed one of my favorite episodes of season two, which is School Heart, the third episode. Um, so let's let go and recap. Let's talk about what happened in the episode before a little bit and then what happens in this one. So previously on Buffy's a Vampire Slayer, Buffy, a retired vampire slayer of 16, showed up at Sunnydale High only to discover that she's not that retired. Her new watcher, conveniently hired as the school librarian, tells her the charming little California town her mom moved her to is actually a hotspot for demonic activity. In the course of trying to get a social life, she actually stumbles into her slayer duties to rescue her new friends from vampires. And in a moment of cockiness, she gets attacked from behind by a big vamp who throws her inside a grave and goes after her neck as three fateful words appear on the screen to be continued. So in this episode, um, Buffy breaks free of Luke, the big vamp, and manages to rescue Willow and Xander, but Jesse, their friend, is captured. The next morning, Giles brings the newbies up to speed with basic vampire and slayer lore as they figure out what to do next. Buffy and Xander go to rescue Jesse. Giles and Willow research the harvest, um, the thing that the guy from the alley told um, Buffy about. Despite some help from the handsome, in an annoying way, stranger, guy from the alley, to find the right way to Jesse, Buffy and Xander arrive too late. He has been turned into a vampire and tries to lead them into a trap. 
figuring out that the fate of the world rests in them stopping this harvest from happening that night. Buffy, despite being grounded by her mom, with the help of Willow, Zender, and Giles, go confront the bad guys at the bronze, where they have taken the crowd hostage so that Luke can feed on them and magically give the master enough strength to free himself from this, his, I think, interdimensional prison. Uh, anyway, Buffy's awesome. She kills Luke. Jesse gets accidentally killed by Zender's stake, and they save the world while no one notices. Um, the next day, Cordelia... I, I don't mean that, by the way, in a flippant way. It's like people don't seem to care in, as much as they should that they just saved the world. The next day, Cordelia has rewritten the night in her head, showing the lens the human brain will go to not face reality. Giles tells the newly formed gang that this is only the beginning and that the fate of the world may depend on them. They walk away, bantering as he sighs and says the world is doomed. All right. So that's basically the story. I'm pretty sure you remember it, but... um. Just in case, you know, you haven't had time to rewatch the episode or watch it. Um, so first section, the joy, because it's always good to start with the joy. All right. So I took copious notes on this episode. So I'm going to be reading some of the notes sometimes. I don't know how weird that's going to sound, but I'm, I'm experimenting here. So we'll see what happens. So the joy. Um, first thing I wrote is the first library scene is so, so great. Every line is gold. I really love that scene. I think it's very important because the library is going to be such a crucial um, place for the rest of um, the next few seasons. I don't want to spoil anything, but it's like the point of a pilot is to establish things. And this is definitely an establishment of, okay, when there's trouble, the gang... Um, meets in the library and try to figure it out and this is the first time this happens and there's a, there are a lot of really good lines that i'm going to mention in the rest of the episode that i find really great that are from that scene um i find in general that willow and giles are particularly charming and funny in this episode i like i love xander and i love buffy in many ways but i think willow and giles really strike the right note right away right off the bat and i really love that um I also like this is so I usually kind of hate the clothes that Buffy wears in the first season, but I kind of like her outfit and I love that she's wearing sunglasses on her head when she get goes into the crypt. That's a little detail, but it's kind of it says something about um, the way she wants to be a casual superhero. Um, I really like that. I um, I love when Buffy starts telling Xander about beheading a varsity player and she's like saying like, yeah, this thick neck and I only had this little exacto knife. And she, and she looks at him and he's not, he's kind of like shaky and she's like, you're not loving this story. And he says, no, actually I find it oddly comforting. <laughs> I think that's such a great line. And that's saying so much about Xander and about um, Buffy. Um, there's a lot of little moments that I love. I really find that the joy is also the section where I would, um, I will talk about all the stuff that makes me laugh. So, um, Giles reacting to Willow finding accounts of rash of murder saying, Oh, great. And then like, Oh, no, I mean, you know, not great. Just, you know, I think it's really funny because it's a, it's also something that makes those kind of, of, uh, worlds really fun is that when you basically deal with horrible things and you're like, get happy to know that, when you find them, even though technically you shouldn't be happy about things being horrible. Anyway, uh, I thought it was charming. <clears throat> uh, 
Um, I don't think all of the fighting quite works for me yet, and I'll get back to it, but I really love some of the moves she has in the fight with Luke at the end. I love the way she um, jumps down. I love the way she jumps from the pool table. I love the way she kills a vampire without looking at him with a pool cue. And um, <clears throat> and you hear the thump of him falling um, off camera, even though technically... Basically, if she turned him to dust, he shouldn't go thump, but it's still kind of funny and kind of cool. <clears throat> um, I, you know, there's a lot of iconic moments in this episode. I love the way she, like the iconic shot that becomes the shot of the end of the opening credits. Um, when she just, after killing Luke, she looks at the um, the vampire who are left and she just raises her eyes and they like run away. That look is cool and that light is cool and that shot is cool. So yeah, so that's a lot of the joy comes from um, the great dialogue and the cool moments in that last scene. That's really like, that's really where the joy comes from most. Um, Let's talk about the pain. So um, there are actually a lot of, this is still like the early days, so we're just establishing things, but there are actually some pretty um, powerful things that we learn about the characters and their um, emotional stakes in this episode. Uh, first, we really get to see like the first episode, Buffy's like really trying to be clever about not wanting to be a slayer. And then we see right away in this one how she's actually really hard on herself, which Giles points out. Um, and she tells him, she responds um, kind of mad, saying, you're the one that told me that I wasn't prepared enough, understatement. Uh, and then she goes on to say that like, she thought she was on the top of everything and then blah, blah, blah. And then when she figures out what happened, she, which is a second later, and she figures it out herself, but she still, her reaction is to say, God, I'm so mentally challenged, which is such a harsh thing. And, um, and that's, that gets a little worse when we figure out that her mother treats her because of course her mother doesn't have all the information and she just sees that she came home really late and she didn't hear her and that she wants to go out again and that she missed a class because the principal called her <clears throat> but her mom really treats her like a really irresponsible teenager like a fuck up basically and that's so sad because Buffy's like the opposite of that she's actually so hard on herself she keeps saying, like, Jess is my responsibility. And she's like, I'm the slayer. I have to do this. And um, <clears throat> and that's kind of heartbreaking also because when her mom grounds her, Buffy, like, gets frustrated for a second, but she basically just moves on from it and starts uh, packing her supplies and sneaks out of the, by the, through the window. Which means she's not even really thinking about it. It's not like like her mom grounding her is not even really an obstacle. It's just a, it's a mental obstacle, but an emotional one. But it's not a physical one. Which means basically she's on her own. She's under nobody's authority, therefore nobody's protection, and that's kind of um, kind of tough. Especially because this is like this moment we're we'll talk about later also. But like the moment where she, after talking to her mom, she opens her trunk and you see like little girls toys and then you realize it's a <clears throat> it's just a cover because underneath you have all the supplies she needs to kill vampires 
So like she doesn't get to be a little girl. I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's not even a metaphor. It's just a symbol, but it's a really obvious one. But uh, which I think is okay. Like the show um, deals with a lot of complex metaphors, but it's okay that it sometimes just shows you what's going on. Um, I also think in terms of like tough emotional moments, I actually think like the forever death of Jesse is pretty sad. Also because it's very mundane and tragic, like it happens by accident as he's like giving this big speech. And it's like, I don't know, it's sort of also almost a metaphor for Zender's karma of like uh, being in, like he's treated, basically Jesse tells what a loser he used to be, which is a way of saying Zender is a loser. He says, Jesse was an excruciating loser who couldn't get a date with anyone in the sighted community. Look at me, I'm a new man. So he's basically um, trashing Xander when he says this and then tells Xander he doesn't have the guts to kill him um, and then ends up getting killed by, by getting pushed on Xander's take. And that's, I don't know, it's tragic in many ways. It's tragic for Jesse who thinks like he's cool because he became a violent man and we're going to talk about it later. There's some predatorial stuff going on with him that just shows that how misguided he is and also but also Xander who like at the same time didn't really have the guts to kill his friend but then ended up ha having to do it um I don't know there's some some tragic irony in there all right the brain so the the smart stuff so I feel I feel that the show at this point is more clever than smart it gets much smarter I do believe there's a lot of clever stuff. I think the setup is clever. The idea that um, the, the mythology, the idea that um, the, the the world used to be um, inhabited by demons and now, um, hang on, my computer turned off. I guess I said hang on to doing a podcast. Um, it used to belong to demons and vampires uh, and then the demons left and then made the vampires and then everybody just wishes for the humans to disappear. I think it's more interesting than just the idea of like they're bad and we're good or whatever. It's more like, I don't know, it's already the idea of history is right there. And um, I find that's a more interesting setup for creating interesting characters of demons and vampires than it would be if they were just like representation of evil. Um, and um, though I feel the characters still see them as just representation of evil, but it will get more complicated and this setup helps that. I also think there's a lot of like cleverness in how the characters are brainstorming and figuring stuff out and showing their skills. And um, I just think also the, the, the episode is clever in the plotting because the plotting though not perfect, actually helps show a lot of the facets of the of the show. So yeah, I think it's a clever episode. I don't think it's the episode that really shows how intelligent the show is yet. Um, so some of the symbolicism is, is cool. It's not, it's not as erudite as it will get later. Um, okay, let's talk about the ridiculous. So there's a lot of stuff that still bothers me because we're still in season one and a lot of stuff bothers me. Um, I'm not a fan of the music and the fights. 
yet. I mean, some of the moves I think are cool, but most of the, some of the, I think, I don't know if it's the way it's shot. I don't know if it's because it didn't have a lot of budget. Like there's some interesting shots, but I feel the fighting shots are not the best, but mostly I think what bothers me is the music. I think it's just, it's supposed to be an homage to like cheesy, um, you know, uh, scary movies, but I just don't, I, it doesn't really work for me. And when I say music, I really mean the score. I really don't mean the soundtrack. So um, that's kind of tough for me because I love the beginnings and I love so many things, but yes, there's this sort of clunky thing about it. Um, that's not helpful. I especially have a really hard time taking anything that happens in that layer seriously. Like the master's lair is so ridiculous looking to me. Um, it's just, it's just hard for me. Like it feels like it's a, I don't know. It feels like a cheesy eighties music video. Um, that's what it feels like. Um, I also think that when she jumps over the gate, that's a little much like it's, it's like she's Bionic woman. And I don't feel like that's kind of her style and i think it's just because it's a pilot and they don't really know what they're doing yet but it's kind of silly it's kind of silly because you'd never see her do that again um angel is also a little bit ridiculous some he says stuff sometimes like some of the jokes don't quite land actually he he's okay when he's emotional it's really the jokes that he's not great at then he gets better with time, but like when he says, actually, I thought it was going to be a little sooner. It's a little on the nose. I mean, kind of works because he's trying to pretend to be cool when he's actually really cheesy. So it makes sense that he would, um, you know, he's just, a, like, I guess the character's awkward, not the actor, but um, it still doesn't really, you feel like it doesn't quite work the way it should. Uh, but to get back to the lair, because really, I like, I think, I mean, the master can be funny. But the problem is a lot of it is played really um, like serious and dark and prophetic. And so the fact that the, the most interesting lines are jokes, like when the master says, oh, you have something in your eye and just, you know, puts his uh, nail in someone's eye. Um, but the fact that it's so comedic when it works makes kind of the rest feel like fall flat even more. I do get it. Like they're trying to show, I feel, and I really feel in general season one is really about showing um, the gap between Buffy's, um, how modern she is and how, um, yeah, casual she can be. And she talks uh, next to all this like prophetic, um, you know, old dudes who speak like, like old books, basically, and she doesn't. And I get it. And we really get it when she shows up to Luke and he's like, has this big sentence. Um, uh, I can't, I'm trying to find it, but he has like this big line of like, what? So the, aren't there? He has a big line and she's like, she says something really casual and it's, the difference is apparent and I, I guess that's what she is that's why it has to be this way but that makes the scenes with the bad guys just boring to me and it, it was always an issue I can rewatch all of Buffy episodes all the time but those first season bad guy scene I'm just like yeah it just not doesn't work for me it doesn't quite gel um I also feel like the way she wins the fight against Luke it's 
better on paper than in reality the way she like breaks the thing and she's like sunlight it's in nine hours moron i i think it's a, a cool idea that doesn't quite translate to the execution and i also okay so this is one thing i find really ridiculous um to the point that i actually dislike it very much which is when uh buffy throws a i don't know you call it symbol like um yeah the symbol to decapitate one of the bad guys and Xander makes a stupid joke he says heads up and then you have a shot of Buffy laughing like fake laughing it's like one second but I always think like that's not a real laugh um the point is that it's that's when Luke um gets her but I, I really don't like that shot all this to say like there's stuff I don't like but um yeah some of this stuff is ridiculous some of this stuff is really like doesn't it's the kind of stuff that every time I see it, I'm like, God, I hope the people watching this for the first time don't pay too much attention to that shot. Cause it's, it's really not that bad in the long run, but it can't, I really feel like it can discourage you if you just started watching the show. If you see like, you're like, okay, that's a little clunky and a little corny. And, and I kind of want to say, ignore all that. There's so much more, but, um, I think it's important to acknowledge it. And I also feel a lot of people disagree with me. Like, I'm sure some people love those moments in those scenes. Um, it is a personal thing. So I find that actually very interesting. I find in general that with Buffy, it's really fans disagree on so much. It's kind of crazy. Um, okay, I added a section called the people because I kind of want to talk specifically about the characters. I think I added the section. I'm pretty sure I didn't have it in the first episode, but... um. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to talk specifically about um, the characters because I also like realized that I wanted um, for this podcast to be also oriented for um, screenwriters or people who are interested in screenwriting. And so I kind of want to talk about specific stuff with uh, the characters, not in terms of screenwriting, but just discussing character development kind of is a lesson in screenwriting and then later um, we'll talk about a couple of things that I really like specific to structure and writing tools um I mean the the tools I see in the episode so anyway the people so the people so first let's talk more about Buffy and what we learn about her so as I talked about her being really hard on herself um I also think what happens is that like her protector instinct really kicked in the moment she saw Willow leave with a vampire in the first part. And you can see that and that um, she actually seems to have completely forgotten that she didn't want to be a slayer anymore. She's just um, the moment someone's in danger, she feels responsible. And she says, this. she says, Jesse is my responsibility. I'll let him get taken. I'm going to find him. Um, turns out she has a hero complex. And I mean, for a superhero, that makes sense. I mean, that's, I guess that's fortunate, but, um, it seems that it's not about her powers that it's just, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. It seems, but it still seems to be in her nature. She doesn't want to save him because she can. I think it's more like she, because she can, she feels she has to, um, but it's hard to tell how much of that had to be her nature beforehand and how much of that is just guilt um but anyway we definitely see that um despite all the jokes she made in the first part that she actually really really cares about um saving people Oops. 
Um, I had to plug it in my computer because I was not well prepared for this podcast, even though it took me a year and a half to record it. Um, we also learn a lot about the other characters, um, actually Buffy too, in how they decide to act. It's interesting to do character development through action and to see like how they react to a thing and what they decide to do about that thing is the best way to show us who they are, especially in a pilot episode. So um, the idea that Willow and Xander are immediately willing to help out. So the first scene we hear them, uh, Willow is freaked out and Xander is in disbelief, but the moment there's something to be done, they're like, oh, we, 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 can't, we can't just stay inactive. We have to do something. Um, and we actually turn, learn about their skills. So we learned that Willow is a computer whiz. Uh, we learned that Xander has courage, but not always sense. And we learned that Giles uses sarcasm <laughs> in times of crisis. Um, we also see the impact Buffy has on them, especially I think Willow, because in the first part, when Cordelia trashed her, Willow didn't say anything. She walked away. In the second part, when Cordelia is trashing Buffy in front of Willow, Willow stands up to her. She's like, that's not true. You don't know her. And then she actually, um, she makes her delete her thing. Like she lies to her. Basically, she's doing computer programs and Cordelia is like, how do you save this? And she's like, deliver, just because she knows Cordelia will press the deal, D-E-L button, which actually is delete. Um, but that's interesting to see that in just this little time, Willow has been empowered by just being around Buffy. Um, what I wrote is also how serious Xander gets. In the first episode, he just like spends his entire time being goofy and making jokes, including about vampires. And then in this one, he's like, oh, he's very, very serious about Jesse and about saving. And he also gets a little annoying because he's like, when Buffy tells him he can't help, she's like, oh, I'm less than a man. And you're like, okay, so you'd have masculinity issues, which makes sense. But um, it's interesting um, because it will definitely come back to bite him. Aside from the character on their own, there are also some great relationships getting established here. So... um. It's interesting how Buffy is snarky with Angel until he gives her a sad look. Um, we also see that she she's already wearing the cross he gave her. So, like, already Buffy and Angel have a rapport. Um, you can tell, like, Xander, it's funny, it's, Xander establishes his trust for Buffy when they rescue Jesse before they know he's a vampire. And he goes, it's cool, Buffy's a superhero. <laughs> That's sort of like him vowing his loyalty and his trust in Buffy. Um, there's little things established too, like Buffy establishes that Giles will be called Giles. She calls him Giles. She could have said Mr. Giles. She calls him Giles and he calls her Buffy, which is not completely, like, could have called her Miss Summers. But it's it's little things like the first time they do that in a group basically becomes law in a TV show, especially un un unless something else happens. And basically in this episode, you see the team get built, the, what people call the core four. Um, so the core of the show, Buffy, Giles, Willow, and Xander. They're, it's funny because the other characters are actually more strictly labeled kind of and, and put into boxes in this episode. And actually, 
which is part of why their evolution is going to be so interesting because we we tend to see them as like more um stereotypical in the first episode the, the really the only one that gets really poorly treated is Jesse um i really feel like Joss really wanted to shock the audience by killing one of what is felt as one of the main characters in the first episode and um but it's so much of a manipulation and it's not some something that he cared like he didn't care about the character so basically um it kind of feels like yeah it's it's a little manipulative because not in this one but i guess that's technically a spoiler but yeah, I still think like just in this one, the way they come back and they're like, Willow's like, is he dead? That's like a really harsh question to ask about someone you supposedly grew up with. And then she's like, worse. And she says, I'm sorry, Willow. And Willow doesn't say anything. She doesn't cry. They just... It really feels like, yeah, it really feels like it's, um, he doesn't get treated as well as he should be. Um... Joyce really comes off as a clueless mom and she's like so shaming of her daughter like don't get kicked out please don't do this it's really like like oh no it hasn't started yet the problems it's just if you really want to say like Joyce you're making it worse but it's funny because also she's trying like there's this really telling line when she says the tapes all say I should get used to saying it no which basically means she's been reading uh parenting tapes and I'm like change in the tapes this is not helpful um cordelia is a very cliche popular superficial mean girl um she also like the way she talks all the time and when one of her friends wants to talk she's like uh hello uh, can i say a sentence um it's funny because she but she's, she's so good at it that it totally works and she apparently she says something else just we didn't say in high school which is excuse me who gave you permission to exist do I horn in in your private conversations? No. Why? Because you're boring, which is like a really, really lethal line. Um, it's funny because she's like, she's so much the cliche, like she, that it's hard. At this point, nobody likes her. Um, I mean, you love her when you know her and you recognize how good she is at being a mean girl. But of course, at the time, you're like, okay, she's mean about Buffy for no reason. Um, and when Jesse, like, the fact that she agrees to dance with Jesse when he gets rough with her, it's like, which goes back to predatory saying when she's just like, oh, no. And then he's like, yes, you're going to dance with me. And she's like, okay, one dance. And you're like, ugh, that's awful. And she's rude <laughs> to everyone. But, but she's already something that I love about Cordelia. She's a class A screamer. She's the best screamer. Then she screams twice. And it's amazing every time. I love her when she screams. Okay, so that that was the people. Um, the symbolic. So I want to talk a lot about that in um, episodes in general. And I was thinking at first, oh, this is the beginning. And I don't really know what is symbolic about this episode. I mean, there's a couple of things. But I feel like it gets much more symbolic with time. Blah, blah, blah. And then I started, started thinking about it. And then I realized, um, first of all... The symbolic, um, well, this is the obvious thing of the toy trunk, right? She opens her toy trunk and you see a doll and you see like little girl things. And then 
she takes it off, she puts the thing away, and you realize underneath it are the weapons. So that's, of course, symbolic. And that's like saying she, this little girl doesn't get to be a little girl and she has to hide who she really is and how powerful she is. Okay. She doesn't get in us to be innocent. She doesn't get childhood. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's an obvious one, but I was thinking about other stuff that I thought were interesting. Um, especially Jesse, the way Jesse talks about being, um, what it feels to be a vampire. And he says this thing about how he feels connected. And I was thinking about it. And I was like, it's funny because, um, connected has such an interesting, um, connotation of basically having, like, I was thinking he used to be a loser and now he's connected, which means now he has friends in high places, which means like, there's some of the idea when I was like, oh, is this like, are the forces of darkness like a representation of of the patriarchy, basically? It's funny because I never really thought about it this way. I, I think I know some people do. Like, I think um, it's um, Elena's character in One Day at a Time who's watching Buffy in the first season and she's saying she's fighting like the demon and they represent the patriarchy. And that's kind of true, of course, kind of. I mean, of course, not of course, actually, because to me, Buffy was always more than just a feminist text. It just happens to be feminist, but I don't think that's the point of it. Um, I think it's really about um, being human. And so the patriarchy is one of the elements, but not the only one. But then I realized, I mean, I'm calling it the patriarchy, but I, I was thinking um, maybe more like the collective generational trauma of history like and it's interesting the idea of being infected it's because it doesn't mean that the people are bad people that just sucked in into bad behavior by terrible traditions and old way of looking at the world i don't know i just it just kind of dawned on me i was like oh okay so it's not so much as if the patriarchy is just in general like systemic oppression systemic uh, power dynamics that are actually not great for anybody, um, even though they're a little bit worse for minorities and women. But um, yeah, and it's interesting because at first I was like, he can't just be the past because Joss Whedon doesn't dislike the past. He has this whole thing in the Captain America um, arc in Avengers about actually honoring the good stuff from the past so I was like it can't be just the past but I do feel the idea of like a systemic thing that's definitely kind of wh whether he was aware of it or not by the way but I do feel like that's the symbolic thing um and and so and so then the idea of Jesse suddenly feeling like he can have a girl and he he's powerful and it's just um yeah it's really it's really but also i like that then he dies because he's being a dick and so he gets punished by the fate um that kind of that the, the idea of like and it's funny because then you think about it and giles says uh the world is much older than you any of you um knew something like that that's a line um i have it in the quotes later and it's just like oh yeah, this, the whole vampires, demons, as as is told at the beginning of the episode, they're vestiges. Vestiges? Um, I don't know how you say that. In, yeah, I think it, you, it's the same word in English. Of the past, 
vestige in French. And so, um, yeah, it's like a representation of the past. And so ancient time, but a certain version of ancient time that is toxic and, um, yeah, and wants to destroy modern things. Yeah, progress, I guess. So, I, yeah, I think it really works. And I think it's going to be interesting to rewatch the entire show thinking like this and realizing how much. Because it's funny because I had a friend, my friend Julia, um, I remember we were talking about an episode way down the line and um, talking about it's like a recurring thing, like th theme of Buffy questioning people who study history or her studying history. There's like, a, I mean, we'll get to it eventually. She was asking me if... Um, I thought this was because history tended to ignore her history as a slayer. And um and I, and and so there might be like a running theme about dealing with the past. And not just the past, but the way history has been told and the way the power has been distributed in the past. Um which works because demons and vampires all like deal like use violence and 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 heritage and lineage and and actually are like really really um dicks about blood and bloodlines <laughs> and they, they like the demons called vampires half-breeds which is like super racist so <laughs> to in the demon world uh but it's interesting then that they had yeah I, I'm, anyway so i was thinking of that i was like oh my god is this like a i'm not saying it's a whole new way of looking at it because i always figured buffy to be political i actually wrote Atlant about it and we'll get into it, but I'd never had exactly that reading of what the forces of darkness represented and all the different kinds of vampires and demons and are all like instruments of that um basically view of society, of systemic oppression, of like of the systems that oppress society. So yeah, um we'll keep talking about it. But it's what's interesting is that the way she talks, like she doesn't talk like them. She fights differently, like in the beginning of the episode, this episode, she um, she just grabs a tree branch to kill someone and then she uses a pool cue. Like the idea of like, she's completely, she, she has a revolutionary approach to things. Um, I also think in the, there's another symbolic moment, which is Buffy's losing consciousness. So after she has a f horrible fake laugh, Luke attacks her from behind and just basically just holds on to her and she kind of loses consciousness and he's about to bite her and she wakes up and heads butt him head butts him and i do feel like this is also a symbol of like resources resources women will find in moments of of dire need and uh, in general how buffy is like often at the end of her rope in a desperate situation and has to find some extra strength from the inside um, to save the day and save herself. So I don't know. I think that's also a symbolic scene in general for her character. Uh, I also think that at the end when uh, Cordelia, the way she talks about, the way she just talks about how she saw people with masks and they look weird and she clearly like has forgotten or misunderstood that they were vampires and then she said but they also like Buffy knew them it's like it sets her up 
in a symbolic way as a representation of normalcy, at least for the beginning of the show. She is normalcy. She is the epitome of what of what Buffy should want to be or should be or used to want to be or used to be. Um, so that's that's what's symbolic. Okay, the revolution. So um, the first revolutionary thing about this episode is actually that first statement from Giles, which is um, the world is older than you knew, and he says. And contrary to popular mythology, it did not start as a paradise. This is a really important thing because it's basically saying that Christianity is popular mythology, which is extremely strong from a for an American TV show on a network ch channel in the 90s. Being agnostic, because it's not atheist per se, because she also, the fact that she has crosses and holy water shows she's not, and we see uh, them working, it shows that they're not, saying god doesn't exist and there's no god they're saying christianity is popular mythology which basically also means that these artifacts work because of the belief we put in them but doesn't there's no like clear statement of like oh god exists and we are um doing his work and it's a, a recurring thing that is interesting of how religion is represented um in the show <clears throat> But anyway, that's that's actually pretty fucking bold, is my point. Um, it's hard to list everything that's revolutionary. I think 24 years later, it's hard to see how shocking this thing is. I just read an article that was written for the 20th anniversary where they were saying it's hard to remember how shocking it was that Jesse got killed. So Jesse getting killed was a shock. Um... Buffy's agency is incredible. It's a shock. Um, I remember showing the episode a few years ago to a friend and he was like, I love this because she's, she's so in charge right away. And I didn't even think of that. And maybe I said that in the um, first episode. If I'm repeating myself, I don't think that's too bad because I'm saying so many things. <laughs> maybe it um, helps keep it clear. But yeah, she has so much agency. That's very, very strong. Um, now I'm like worried that I didn't listen to the first episode of the podcast before recording this one. And I'm just going to repeat myself because everything I'm saying um, was true of the first episode. But anyway, um, the specific writing, we're going to see in the quotes. Um, the writing is so sharp. It's really, really, really crazy sharp. Um, it's it's just like the, the every word, uh, every comma, it's really, it's really strong. Um, and actually... It's strong and it's also interesting because it weaves in two very different styles. There's a lot of banter, but there's some existential pathos as well. And they're sort of like you go from one to the other all the time. This is half of it is written as a sitcom and half of it is written as a drama. And it's really interesting. Basically, all the group dynamic is like very bantery and very sitcom-y in a good way. Like not in a like sitcom laugh track, but kind of a still like really joke, joke, joke kind of way. And then um, it's like ping pongs all the time. And then there's like some emotional moments where suddenly you're like, oh, wow, I've been caught by surprise. And I think the way that's really uncommon for the times. Um, I really feel like this show created a style. I mean, sort of, I, I want to, when I talk about what shows came before Buffy that really, I feel influenced whether unknowingly or not. 
but I feel like the DNA of Buffy is in um, other shows that started. Actually, there's like three shows that started a few years earlier. And I do feel like they have the DNA of Buffy all together. I think one of them is Xena, Warrior Princess, because um, we didn't talk about it as well. Like how that was a liberating show to exist because it dared to do so many crazy things and have this powerful female character, like physically powerful. Um, it's actually a really interesting watch. I would suggest for anyone who has the time to watch all of Xena, it's very surprising and daring and different and sometimes weird, but I think completely on purpose. So it's, 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 it's a, it's a wild ride. So I think Xena, I think Babylon five, which is, I'm actually right now rewatching and I, the way it cares about continuity and the storytelling and the, and the and the arc of the characters and the evolution, I really feel like that's something that's very strong um, that they have in common strongly. And then um, my other favorite show from before um, that I loved right before Buffy, which is Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. And I really don't think that's um, on purpose. I'm not sure we didn't ever watch that. But that show is incredibly well written, like really, like I rewatched it a bunch of time last year and it's just, it's still really good. And the mix of adventure, romantic comedy and humor um, and having like really taking, like really caring about the subject matter, uh, Lois and Clark in a more classic way, Buffy in a much more subversive way, but like really caring about truth and justice and um and all this stuff and you know like doing what's right and being a superhero and sacrificing for the good of the many uh i don't know it's just it's really really similar um care so yeah so to me these three existed before but buffy did it better in many ways it was sharper it was cooler it's really cool i mean it may look Maybe to some people now it looks a little dated, um, the first season. I don't think it looks dated afterwards, but the first season definitely didn't have the money they had afterwards. So it may look dated, but actually for the time, it's incredibly sharp and cool. And um, rewatching all these, these other shows, yeah, that, that's really the different, like all the nerdy stuff. I also feel like the sci-fi nerdy stuff that was good when it had like big themes like Buffy does. So like Lois, like I just said with Lois and Clark, but also Babylon 5, but also Star Trek. I feel it always did it in a really epic way, but also in terms of the language was kind of epic, which means kind of distance from real life and also distance like big fates and galaxies and blah. And so, and this is really, this hits us right at home. Like Buffy's like us, like, at least her friends are really like us. So this stuff can happen to anyone. And that makes everything a little more heightened and surprising. And, and I really feel like that's, that's what changed. That suddenly the idea of mixing the epic adventure, nerdy, sci-fi, fantasy stuff with, well, my so-called life, basically, like teenage drama. That's actually really, really... That's what makes it special and different and revolutionary. And this is really right there. And I mean, of course, what I'm saying now is like, goes with like the entire show, but I feel like this is really gets established in this episode and that tone. And if you go back 
you'll realize that American critics were enamored with the beginning because right away they it it was like a huge slap in the face. The writing on that show they could not believe it, and um and if you think now it's become such a normal style. I mean, I, I really feel um, Whedon was influenced by um Spider Man, and like some of the writing of the Marvel comics. But in many ways, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is deeply influenced by something like Buffy. I mean, it's not for nothing that he ended up writing Avengers. Um, so, yeah, that's a revolution. I think that's like, that's a fair, like, I, I can move on now. I said enough. All right. So we're going to go to the next. This is a new section that I call The Craft. Um it's sort of what I used to call the text, but now I'm calling it the craft because I want to talk about some of the ways every Buffy episode teaches us about the craft, the craft of storytelling, the craft of TV writing, um, of screenwriting. So yeah, so I'm I'm probably not going to be able to cover everything because there's so many, so much, so much stuff in every episode. But I I just wrote down a bunch of stuff. So, um. The first, those first scenes in the library do a lot of housekeeping. So it's, housekeeping is really like, you're establishing a show, you have to explain a lot of stuff about the rules of the universe and the mythology and the characters and how to behave, blah, blah, blah. And that what's so funny is that technically housekeeping, which is exposition, is really like the hardest thing to write because it gets really boring. And as I said earlier, that's my favorite moment on the show. Like that, that part of the episode, I find so funny. Every line is amazing. I just, I love it. And so I'm like, how interesting it is that the, what's supposed to be the worst part of the episode actually ends up being the most, um, enjoyable. And that's when, you know, you have a good tone. It's because you find a way to make the stuff you need to talk about interesting and fun. And that's how, you know, like you as a writer, that's, and as a viewer, that you found the right show and the right idea. Um, so what, we learn a lot of things. We will learn about the original vampire lore as we talk. We also talk about the Slayer. Um, Xander, they do also housekeeping for us viewers. So they explain stuff. Xander says, I can't believe it. It's basically showing us, like being, showing us that the characters are rational human beings like we would be. And then Buffy rationalized it away as well, saying, oh, sure, I'm sure that guy had just like, he just had a really good rash on his face. And she says, that's what I thought the first time after I stopped screaming. So it's like, it's really grounding the lore in reality because the characters are having very um, rational, normal reactions, um, including Willow who keeps saying like, I think I need to sit down, you're sitting down. And then she's like, is it okay? If, does anybody mind if I pass out? It's just, um, Willow also mentions the police and Buffy basically dismisses it and saying they don't only come with guns. That's really important because it's basically establishing they cannot rely on human law and order or weapons. That's really an important thing to establish early on. And um, it's really like the, it's the episode in general does such a good job at giving all the information necessary to understand the basic rules of the universe um it's yeah they explain how vampires came to be how to kill a vampire um like the idea when zender is like oh how do you kill them that's all all information for the viewer as well 
And also there's this moment where they basically, Giles, establish something really important for the lore, which is that in this universe, vampires are not the people they used to be as humans. I mean, this is something that will get discussed at length and maybe um, <clears throat> in an interesting way in, um, as the show progresses, but it just says this, like, um, the line is like, I, I, I wrote down the line later, but basically he says to Xander, Jesse's dead. When you see him, you're not looking at him, you're looking at the thing that killed him. Um, that's really interesting. We also, the the show also established, like those scenes establish how they problem solve, um, which is the problem solve by committee, which is also something very important for the show. It's not one person deciding for the group, it's they decide together. They basically debrief and brainstorm and come up with solutions. Um, they, they think out loud and figure out the next move together. Uh, and generally it's always, is always something to do with research. Um, spoiler for the rest, but there's research and then the field and then they regroup and they do more research and then more research has to be done. They formulate a plan and then they try to implement the, implement the plan, but they have to improvise a bunch. So this is like, the, the sh that episode is showing us how the team is going to problem solve most of the things. Every problem is going to be different, but they're giving us a pattern that is actually the pattern of how um, stories gets told get told in on the show. And it's interesting because the idea of like research is really important. Like research is important, regrouping is important, the plan is important, and improvising is important. It's really like all of these steps are important for the ethos of the team. Um, there's also really like cool tricks on how to do good exposition. So Giles goes into this whole explanation about demons and vampires, blah, 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 in the beginning. And then basically he starts talking about um, the Slayer, one girl in all the world, and then Buffy jokes. So he loves doing that part. And so a little miffed, uh, Giles basically summarizes everything he just said in a few words. Slayer hunts vampires, Buffy's a slayer. <laughs> um, which is, it's really interesting when you do long exposition to find a way to summarize it in such a short way so people can, if they haven't paid attention to the viewers, haven't paid attention to everything, they can remember that one easy line. Um, he also says at some point, here's what we know when he's about to explain um, basically the very, like the ceremony and the harvest and everything that's going to happen. And it's such a, it's such a straightforward way of saying this is going to be exposition. And, um, but it, I don't know. I think a lot of it totally works. I think part of it. So um, even when he says the stuff about Jesse, when he's like, you have to remember that when you see him, you're not looking at your friend, you're looking at the thing that killed him. Um, that's such an easy, simple way of explaining something complicated and, and in many ways, and you're going to find out for those who haven't seen the show, that it's something that is really, um, stays. If you keep hearing my computer keys, it's because I keep letting the screensaver start on my computer and I keep having to uh, put in my password which is actually Buffy related, um, my computer password, but anyway, so, um, Giles is really the master expositioner. And I think part of it's part of the reason why we didn't want him to be British because 
he's saying so much exposition that would sound ridiculous that the British accent sort of gives it gravitas. I really believe that. Um, I also, there's a, another little uh, writing trick um, that he we can see here. Uh, Whedon loves to connect scenes with a word. So basically you finish a scene on a word and then that's the, or like before the word is pronounced and then that word is pronounced in the scene after that. So for example, it's a, it's a really common screenwriting technique when you want to, when you want to just bind together two scenes, um, making a sort of smooth transition, but also on the nose transition. It's, I think it's, it's clever to be like, I know this is like a, a cut transition, so I'm just gonna completely embrace it by 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 using a word as a bridge. And so, um, for example, the second and third scenes from Act One they're linked with the word Slayer. So the master says Slayer, and then it cuts to Xander reacting to the same word during the exposition of Zai. It's like, what exactly is the Slayer? So, um, yeah. I also thought it would be fun to um, talk about the act structure just a little bit. So I'm not going to get too much into it. I'm just going to basically uh, point out what the act, how the acts end. So this is, um, Buffy is really teaser and for act every time. And I think it's it's interesting to see, um, if you're interested in screenwriting, to see how the acts of a TV show are structured because the point is not to... Um, you can learn so much about narrative structure by studying that over and over again. The point is not to reproduce it every time. The point is just to realize that every story has a specific structure and how a TV show keeps us entertained and um, focused by structuring the story through their acts. So basically an act is between a black screen, a fade out screen, because that's when the commercial breaks are and... Um, and so that's why they have to basically, so the, the point at the beginning is that if there's commercial breaks, they need to do something fun or interesting, not fun or interesting, but like a twist or a turn, a turning point right before the commercial break. So the people will come back after the commercial break. But because of that, I believe it has really taught TV shows to be very narratively structured and better than a lot of other stuff at storytelling. And so I think it's interesting to talk about it. So um, the teaser ends with, the teaser is Buffy uh, freeing himself, herself from Luke, going to rescue Willow Zender. And the end of the teaser is her face. And she says, Jesse, because he's been taken and she doesn't know where. Uh, the act one starts with the exposition in the library, but also in the lair. Well, the master finds out what happened as well. And that's really like a lot of what's happening. Um, the end of act one is Buffy going to the tunnels and saying to Angel, uh, wish me good luck. And he says good luck, but once she's gone under his breath. So that's, that's the end of act one. I don't think it's a really strong act one break. I think it's interesting because of the angel thing, but it doesn't really work for this. Like it's not an, a turning point for the story as much as and could be. But anyway, but the angel thing makes it interesting enough. Um, the second act ends much more strongly with Jesse turning into a vampire and saying, when they say, what do we do? And Jesse turns into a vampire and says, I got an idea. You can die. So end of act two, end of act one, she goes to help Jesse in a dangerous place. I guess that's what the, how it's an act break because 
um, Angel just told her it was really dangerous, so she still goes. End of Act 2, which is usually a turn, like things are not as you expected, and it's the problem is more clumsy than you thought, and so End of Act 2 is Jess is actually already a vampire. End of Act 3, in Act 3, like they, that's the whole regroup, like running away, regrouping, figuring out what happened. The end of Act 3 is Darla in vamp face with her vampire buddies, including Luke, walking in slow motion towards the entrance of the bronze on a great song that's going to be the song of the episode uh, called Ballad, uh, Ballad, Ballad oh, I, can't, I can't pronounce it, Ballad, Ballad from Dead Friends uh, by Dashboard Prophets. And um, so like that's the danger. And often Act 3 in Buffy episodes end with like, a battle like the beginning of a battle like in the middle of the battle buffy is in danger it's it's always a dangerous thing i mean usually a dangerous thing act three um i guess maybe act one is like suspense and act two is twist and act three is danger huh we'll see if that works but i think it might be and of course the end of the episode is uh Giles saying the earth is doomed so act one Exposition, act two, we try to solve the problem, but it doesn't work. Act three, we figure out what's actually going on and go to battle. And act four, resolution. That's kind of the structure it usually has. Um, all right, I had some notes that I wrote about, I'm gonna read it, what I wrote about this pilot episode in general and the second part um, about the craft and the writing. So I always bitch about the pilot because I tend to bitch about pilots that are double episodes. But the reality is that those two episodes establish an incredible amount, amount of things. Uh, exposition about the universe, its mythology, characterization, tone, and an actual plot. Um, I still think that structurally the pilot is flawed because the protagonist, Buffy's drive, is not completely um, drawn out in the story. She spends most of part one claiming she's retired, but never truly addresses it after that. And it makes her protesting feel a little too heavy handed in part one. You could say she was seeking normalcy in part one and then realized she would have to give it up um, because she wants to do the right thing. But the thing is, she sort of does, and she sort of does it by running against her mom's orders, but she doesn't really express it or address it in the second part. So the point doesn't quite land. There's no moment where she makes a decision. Oh, I, it's like, she, it's instinctual, but then because she made such a big deal in the first part about wanting to be retired, then I, I really believe there's some flaws there. Um, I think it's because at this point, Buffy, the person, doesn't completely exist for Joss Whedon. At this point, she's still like a, an inverted trope to him. She's the opposite of the blonde, bubble-headed girl who gets killed in the alley. She, But she's more like a, what I, in French we call an exercice de style. So it's like a stylistic exercise. She's a construct. She's an archetype, not really a person. And, and by the way, I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that the fact that he didn't completely know who she was in the beginning of the writing, it allowed him to discover her and um, actually identify with her more organically. I, I really believe it gave space for the character to become what she became, partly through his growing investment in her journey because he um, there was a heavy dose, I think, of personal identification, but also because it 
got like it allowed him to pay attention to what Sarah Michelle Gellar was doing. And I think and you said it, he said many, many times he was very much inspired by what how she was um, in the character and that sort of changed it. So I'm kind of glad it's she's more of a construct in the beginning than a full fledged emotional being. That's, I think, why she became such a great full-fledged emotional being. Um, okay, so that was the craft. That was the writing. Um, I mean, just plenty more to say, but I feel like I've said enough for today. Uh, okay, my favorite parts, uh, which I, like, it's my favorite part, but at the same time, I feel really silly uh, because it's the quotes, and so I'm going to tell quotes, and they're going to fall flat, but I'm just going to basically rattle off all the my favorite lines from the episode so first one the world is older than any of you know and contrary to popular mythology it did not begin as a paradise i cannot stress enough how much i love this line um willow who says i need to sit down buffy says you are sitting down and willow says oh good for me <laughs> that kills me um i really love also what the beauty and the poetry of when Giles talks about um, basically the sense of the demons and how the world is right now is like waiting for the animals to die out and the old ones to return. So we are the animals in that metaphor. Uh, and then this is great line, the slayer hunts vampires, Buffy's a slayer, don't tell anyone. Well, I think that's all the vampire information you need. <laughs> um, Willow again, does anybody mind if I pass out in the middle of the sentence as a throwaway line? That's why it's really funny. Because she's saying something else and then she's like, does anybody mind if I pass out? That's really funny. Uh, and then when Buffy talks about the vampires going vroom, and Xander goes, they can fly. And she's like, they can drive. <laughs> That's funny. Um, we were I was talking earlier about the specificity of the language. So this is a line I really like from Giles when he says, let's take an enormous intuitive leap, shall we? And say they went underground. That's such a clever way of saying, let's guess. Let's take an enormous intuitive leap. Um, when they're talking about the plans of the underground and he says, I suppose we could go to the building commission to which Buffy says, we so don't have time. I like the formulation. It's not, we don't have the time. It's like, we so don't have time. It's such a better phrasing. And then when uh, Willow shows them the plans, as you see, there's like a million cent lines from this first few scenes. So she shows, shows the plan and he's like, so all the city plans are just open to the public. And she's like, oh, well, in a way, I sort of stumbled. Damn computer, hang on. That's the sound of my computer not accepting my password. Um, I sort of stumbled onto them when I accidentally decrypted the city's council security system. So yeah, that's funny. Uh, of course, I love because I find it so telling that I'm so mentally challenged. Um, I love when when she, Xander follows Buffy and she's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Something stupid." I followed you. <laughs> Uh, I also love when Cordelia is complaining about computer class. Why do we have to devise these programs? Isn't it what nerds are for? Uh, when they find Jesse and he's like, are you man? Are you okay? And he's like, I am not okay on an epic scale to which Xander responds. It's cool. Buffy's a superhero. It's like such a good line. And then he says, they said I was bait. And they respond, oh, great. Now you tell us. Um... In a more serious uh, matter, in a, in a serious way, 
when Xander realizes that Jesse's a vampire and says he's so sorry and Jesse's like don't be and he says you're like a shadow to me now I don't know I find that really powerful um and then when later um this is a Giles line when everything basically they, they're doing the research and it's all starting to make sense and he's like oh it's all coming together and then he, he takes a beat and says I rather wished it weren't which makes me laugh um in the hyper dramatic way the master has is this great line tonight I shall walk the earth and the stars themselves will hide it's a beautiful line um I love the simplicity of Zender's statement when they come back after um the Jesse thing and he says I don't like vampires I'm gonna take a stand and say they're not good which is sort of a joke but not just a joke and that's why it's great it's typical Buffy like it's a joke but actually it's a deep statement and then Buffy turns to Giles and says so Giles got anything that could make this day any worse he says how about the end of the world to which she responds knew I could count on you <laughs> so that's funny uh when Jesse finds out that Cordelia he can't keep Cordelia I don't get one that's really funny too and um and then of course there's a big line that Luke that's 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 where it was the line that Luke um, addresses to the, the the crowd right before Buffy shows up. Um, Tonight will be history as its end. Yours is a glorious sacrifice, degradation most holy. And then, he, and then the one in the crowd says anything is like, what? No volunteers? And that, kill, that kills me. Um, all right. Um, so I decided to add this section called The Thoughts. So thoughts. First thought, um, I can't believe it took me three years to do this episode. So I recorded the first episode in like October 2018. This is October 2021. I took me a year and a half to dare to release it. It took me, um, and then I, 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 the intro for this episode I recorded a year ago. And I, the truth is, this is all weird inadequacy feelings on my part i have uh, i i i think i feel weird making a uh, i still feel weird making a podcast in english because i think because i'm not a real in, in, like i'm not a native speaker and it's ridiculous I, I also don't know who this podcast is for i think it's for me and i have no idea who else it's for i just um yeah i, I think i feel really a lot of different kind of trepidations um so yeah so i i wanted to share that because i feel like it's important to share the stuff like that with people especially in podcasts i think i like when the people i who do the podcast i listen to um talk about this kind of stuff um i also want to say that I know a lot of stuff has been written around and about Joss Whedon in the last year and um, I actually have a lot to say about that because I actually spoke out a lot about this, this book, I had conversations about this, spoke out, uh, about this over the year in France, in French, um, throughout the year and um, I don't want to get into it right away but if you have questions you can ask me. Um, 
I I think we might probably I'm probably gonna end up mentioning some of it maybe over the next few episodes. But right now I'm just I just wanted to say I'm aware, very aware of the conversation and the many conversations happening. Um But I kind of want to talk about Buffy first. And I will talk about Joss Whedon's relationship to Buffy, which doesn't change, which doesn't mean I'm not aware of like some of the conversations happening. Um, yeah, I'm probably going to talk more about this over time. But right now, I just wanted to focus on talking about this episode as it is and how um, and about how it what it means to me. Um and third thought is, I kind of really hope I get it together <laughs> and do an episode, maybe not an episode a week, because I'm doing a lot of other stuff, but like at least two episodes a month, that'd be great. I would love to, in one year, to have had done, yeah, like, to be in season three. That'd be amazing. Well, I guess if I do two a month, I won't be in episodes in season three, but I'd be like, well into season two. That'd be great. Um, all right. So now um, let's talk about the song. So the song I picked, I mentioned it earlier. It's ba Ballad. Oh God, my accent is weird. Ballad for Dead Friends by Dashboard Prophets. Uh, they're playing in this episode. Um, I also want to say before that, that in terms of music, when Cordelia says, I love this song to a song that is clearly like, like the kind of California rock from like college rock from that time. It makes me laugh so much because that kind of superficial mean girl in Paris where I was in high school in 97. I mean, I actually graduated high school in 97. So I started watching the Buffy right after I graduated high school. But anyway, in that, like in Paris, a girl like that, dressing like that, talking like that, acting like that, would never listen to rock music. <laughs> like that was not trendy at all. Not, I mean, it was trendy for people like us, the misfits, like me and my best friend who um, made me watch Buffy for the first time, Marine, who I talk about all the time. So I'm just probably talked about her in the first episode too. Anyway, we were listening to rock, but um, not exactly that rock, by the way. We were more like indie. And we went to like British, um, we're like Radiohead and stuff like that. But um, I'm just saying, Cordelia saying, I love that song, kills me every time because it sounds so fake, though I don't believe it is because definitely the trends and taste in music in California at that time were very different. But to me, it sounds so jarring. So anyway, um, I want to mention that. So anyway, this is... Um, this is Ballad for Dead Friends by Dashboard Prophets. I'm going to put a little bit of it as long as, you know, Apple Podcast doesn't strike me. I'll keep playing songs in this. So enjoy it. And then for those who've seen the rest of the show, you can go back after the song. Uh, not go back. Keep staying with me. And after the song, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, connections between the, this episode and, and the future episodes.
talk about the future. I wanted to thank you for listening to this whole episode. Um, there's a bunch of ways you can find me and I can't remember, but there's like an email and there's like an Instagram and there's like a Twitter and there's like a bunch of stuff that I haven't really, um, used in the last few years, but, uh, they still like this out there. I'm going to put them in the description of this podcast. Um, honestly, like, please write to me because I'm so curious, um, what you think. And if you listen to this, um, yeah. Please let me know. Uh, please let me know anything, really. I'm I'm curious, very curious. Uh, as I said, I don't know what who this is for. I know I need to do this, and um, I've run away from myself for so long. But now I'm really, really curious about other people listening and telling me what they think. So um, this was me, myself, and Buffy. Um, talk to you very soon. And uh, now, now, now is the future. The future. So I think the thing that I come back to, aside from all the stuff that is established in this episode and stays true within the show, I think Xander is really the one that personifies most what I think is so clearly here and actually turns out to be much more um, important in the future. So there's two things. First of all, he saves Cordelia. Three things, actually. He saves Cordelia, which actually she doesn't remember, but that's really the beginning of their relationship for us, the viewers. Um, so he saves Cordelia. He loses someone he loves and never mentions him ever again, which he does every time someone disappears from his life. For the people who've read the comics. Okay, so people who haven't read the comics, uh, don't listen for the next 10 seconds. He never mentions Anya in the comics, almost never. Uh, but also... People who haven't read the comics, you can come back. Um, did I mess that up? Did I tell the people? Whatever. Point is, um, he never mentions Cordelia. He never mentions things that has happened in his past. And Jesse's like the first of the list because he's supposed to have grown up with him and he never, ever talks about him again. Uh, and the third thing is that statement about vampires. I'm going to make a, I'm going to say a statement and say they're not good. Like, I don't like vampires. This is something that keeps being a problem until season seven. I mean, it sort of calms down around Spike in season seven, but up until then is like, he's the one who's like, no, he's a vampire. There's nothing to be said about it, except he's a vampire. Therefore, like, you know, I don't like him. So I find that really interesting. Um, I also want to point out that the last scene when he says the earth is doomed, when Giles says that, and that's, you know, where they banter, that's really, it's mirrored in the last episode of the show, season seven in Chosen. Uh, and the other thing I want to say is that the one thing that bugs me is Darla, because she's like acting all meek and frightful and she's like, oh, <laughs> and you're like, no, Darla, that's not who you are. But of course, they didn't know them yet. So anyway. Um, but it's really distracting. <laughs> so that's, that's what I wanted to say about the future. And of course, I mean, so many other things, but those are really the points I really wanted to make. All right. Um, that's it. So, you know, watch some Buffy and see you soon for episode three. Bye. Hi. 
My name is Yael, and I've been recording this bullshit for like an hour. I've tried all kinds of things, and I think the best thing is just me and my fucking iPhone, because every other tool is making the sound way worse than it is. But I want to check on the thing. I also don't want to spoil you on my new intro, that's why I'm like making a fake one. This is me, myself, and Buffy. <laughs>